0: If you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. Let's look to the Lord. Father in heaven, as we continue our worship of you this morning, we ask now, Lord, as we turn our attention, Lord, to your word, we ask, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged. We pray, Lord, that our minds would be strengthened. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us the wisdom that we need to not only understand the passage, but to understand life, to be able to look at life and evaluate life based on your word and the truth that you've given to us, that, Father, we may then make decisions that we may live our lives in a way that honors you and pleases you. We pray, Lord, that through your word that you would point out to us faulty thinking on our part, perhaps recognizing those things that we do that might be sinful or perhaps things that we are not doing, and because we're not doing them, it is sinful. We ask, Lord, that you would deal with us kindly. But, Father, we also ask that you would continue to bear with us and patiently work with us as you conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. As always, Father, we are so grateful for your word that you have preserved for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews is something block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What I want to do this morning is to explore a question that I think arises out of this passage and that is, why is it necessary for God to destroy the wisdom of the wise? Why is there this conflict that's taking place? Why is as Paul is describing this this tension that exists that for the non-believers they They hear the message of the cross or they hear the message of the gospel. They think it's foolishness. Why are they prone to think that way? Why is that their natural state? I want to go beyond just what we know to be the true answer, which is, well, it's because of sin. What do we mean by that? I want us to understand specifically why this tension exists why it's then necessary for God to, again, to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Why is it that God has decided that man would not be able to figure out the truth pursuing his own wisdom, that he must submit to what God has said? In fact, we ended last week, as we've been dealing with this passage, by saying that when it comes to the Christian worldview, which would be the same thing as meaning a biblical worldview, understanding the world according to the truth that God has given to us, The Christian worldview is that God has spoken and humanity, mankind, we as individuals are not autonomous. That is the main issue between us and God, individually and collectively. Now when it comes to being autonomous, most of us would probably agree that it's a good thing uh, not to have to rely solely and depend upon others. Uh, We believe that it's good to have a fair degree of autonomy. We, the way we raise our kids, we want our kids to grow up to be, in a sense, self-sufficient. We don't want them always to, you know, I guess it would be embarrassing if your 16-year-old says, Daddy, can I please have such and such? We, we expect our children to grow up and take on responsibility. Uh, the goal is for them to eventually move out of the home and, you know, provide for themselves, work, uh, manage their money, and kind of get on with life, so to speak. It's not that we want to break off our relationship with our children, but Basically, it pleases us to see that happening. I know in the beginning there may be some tension uh, when our children first go off to college or maybe move out of the house. We, we kind of, you know, well, I, 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 I still want them around. I don't want them to leave. Of course, in some cases we can't wait to get rid of them. But I guess it kind of depends on what's going on. But the idea is, is that it's still in the end, what, what, we, what makes us proud of our kids is when they do what we consider to be normal and natural. To move out and take full responsibility for their lives to not be dependent upon mom and dad any longer. And so when it comes to being autonomous there's there's this idea in our country and we're not the only country that's this way but we see that as a good thing. And so there's nothing really wrong with that in that sense. But in a biblical or in a spiritual sense autonomy does mean something very different. It's not a virtue. Not a virtue at all. It is a horrendous sin. Because when you look at the Bible, the worldview that it presents to us is once again that God is there, God has created all things, and God expects of his moral creatures, that's us, mankind, he expects a loyalty, he expects a dependency, and he expects obedience at all times. Now good again, some of those words that I just used in our day and age, in our culture, are viewed very negatively. They're viewed as being bad things. And we talk about obedience. We talk about being loyal. We talk about being dependent upon God. Man doesn't like that. This very first, I guess, uh, emotional reaction to that is one of resistance. Because we have been kind of conditioned, because of how our culture is going, to view those things very negatively. That they're somehow demeaning. That when we talk of obedience, it's demeaning. We, we, we think of, well, we expect a toddler to obey mom and dad. That would be the norm. But then when you become a teenager, whether it's 13 or 14 or 15, somehow the idea has gotten across to us that if you obey mom and dad, you are, you are diminished as an individual. You are diminished in the eyes of your friend because you want to be your own person. And so you're not dependent upon them, even though you are completely dependent upon mom and dad at that age. You know, we want to kind of put across this idea that we're not, that we're free to do what we want to do. And of course, in our country, even when it comes to who our bosses are, we don't usually use the word obedience when it comes to our boss, but we do obey our boss. When your boss says you have to do, be at work at a certain time, we obey your boss and you're at work at a certain time. And when he, If he or she sets your schedule or they you know give you your responsibilities you know the idea is to obey them but we just don't like to use that word because it just again just the sound of it today is one that's very demeaning remember that the essence of the fall you go back to the book of genesis and you read about when adam and eve sinned the essence of the of the fall and really of all sin really is this personal autonomy it is the idea that we do not need god That we can pretend that we can live a life totally apart from God, and that we, in fact, are the center of the universe. Now, we won't say it that way. We won't proclaim, I am the center of the universe, because it obviously sounds unbelievably selfish and self-centered, but we live that way. Our expectations of those around us and decisions that are made are made with this idea that we are really at the center of the universe, There's a rejection of reliance upon God. There's a rejection of complete dependency upon God, which is the height of what sin is, which is, again, a radical independence of God and his standards. There's a man, a professor of Bible and history in Missouri, who says this. He says, the biblical story really can be told as a reflection on two Greek words, The first one is cryotis, which I think I'm saying it right, but I'm not sure. The other one is autonomia. The first one means lordship and refers to God's right to rule. And the second one, autonomia, means living by one's own laws. As described, it, It describes man's effort to live independently from God. So then he says that from Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible is one of God's assertion of his lordship or his right to rule over all the universe. But more specifically, over human beings and of humans uh, and of humans uh, uh, and, and their counterassertion of their right to live apart from God and God's rule. Again, as I mentioned, Genesis three describes man's decisive rejection of God's right to rule, and thus the initial expression of human autonomy. While the rest of the Bible describes the disastrous consequences of that action and God's program of redemption to bring humans back under His acknowledged rule forgiven and willingly submitting to him. So again, we have to make sure we understand that that when it comes to man in general, you, you and I and your unbelieving friends and in fact actually your believing friends, every person you know, there is within us this desire to be autonomous. And again, a degree of autonomy is not necessarily a bad thing, but when it comes to our relationship with God, the way that we view the world, the way we live our lives, that, that is Sin, it is the height of sin. And that's every man's natural bent or natural tendency is to move in that, reject, move in that direction. In fact, again, we see this illustrated in our kids when, when they're younger. You know, how many times, when, when our, again, when your kids are real young, you help them pretty much do everything. And then there's that moment when they're still young and, and you go to help them do something and they say, no, I do it. Now, again, we want to encourage some of that. We want want that to happen. Of course, we may not like the way they said it, because sometimes, you know, even when there are three, it's like, no, I do it. You know, and it's (laughs) like, don't you talk to me that way. But the point is, is that we want to see that. But again, when it comes to God, that's not a good thing. And it leads to a lot of great difficulties. So this autonomy, then, is not only original the original sin, but it is, again, this ongoing sin that is found throughout the world. Man's rebellion against God and his refusal to allow God to be God is the fundamental problem of the universe, and it is the problem that Jesus came to remedy. So we have to ask ourselves this question, why does man want to be autonomous? I want to try to explain it this way. The idea that there is an almighty God above us, always interfering in our lives, and commanding us to do and what not to do is an insult to our human dignity and a and a tyrannous restriction of our freedom. That is man's general view towards God. All right. Once again, this idea that there is an Almighty God above us, who's always interfering in our lives and commanding us what to do and commanding us what not to do, it is an insult to our human dignity, and it is a tyrannous restriction to our freedom. That is what many people believe. That is what, I guess you could say, they even feel intuitively. You notice that this begins immediately with, with, a, with a negative assertion. The idea is, is that God's above us, and He's interfering in His life, in our lives, as if He has no right to do that. And of course, God does have the right to do that. This is how many people feel if you think about it for a minute, though, it is kind of strange. I came across this in, in one of the books I was reading. It, I don't know if it's, kind of cor- if it's corny or not, but let me just read it to you because I think it kind of gives to us this, a good idea of showing the foolishness of this kind of attitude. It reads this way. If a man buys a truck, originally the, the story said a car, but I'm no, not really into cars like trucks. But anyway, if a man buys a truck and it receives along with an owner's manual from the manufacturer telling him how to treat the truck, what to do, what not to do. He does not feel it to be an insult to his dignity as an autonomous human being, nor does he find himself saying, I will not have the manufacturer dictating to me what I must and must not do. I will put diesel and not gasoline in the tank if I please. If I don't want to, I shall not obey the direction that I must keep the oil change every three to 5,000 miles. No, the truck owner actually accepts the idea that the manufacturer of his truck knows best and knows best how it should be treated, and he he holds that uh, it is in his own best interest to comply with those directions. In other words, in many aspects of life, there's some kind of an owner's manual. There's someone who has created the thing or made the thing and says, this is what you need to do so this thing will work right so that it will last and you get your money's worth. You don't find people then every day stomping out to their garbage cans, throwing these owner's manuals in the trash, saying, I am autonomous, I know what's best for me, I'll do what I want to do. You might find a few people who do that, but those things don't last long. They can't figure out why they're broken, uh, and why, you know, the new coffee maker only gave them one pot of coffee, and that's it. Uh, And so the idea is that when it comes to God, who created us, he's the one who knows us best, he's the one who is not trying to get things from us. God doesn't need us. God is not some cosmic killjoy that just wants to be a boss. God is not someone who has some needs and he's created us then so he can take advantage of us to meet his needs. He has no needs. He is the one who has our best interests at heart. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to have happiness. He wants us to have peace. He wants us to have satisfaction. He wants us to have this tremendous joy with him and he's given us this manual that explains to us what the problems are, where things have gone wrong, and then what he's done to remedy and how to fix it. It's the same thing when it comes to our kids or our grandchildren. We want to have a good relationship with them. And what do we want for them? We want them to have a good life. And we are convinced that, if, that as our relationship with our children or our grandchildren grows and flourishes... Yeah, we're going to enjoy it, but they're going to have a good life because we're going to do everything in our power to see to it. So it's not a negative relationship. It's not us, even though we are, in a sense, the boss. We're not the boss. We're not trying to lord it over them. We're not trying to do this or do that if we're good parents or good grandparents. We really are. Everything we're doing, we we really are. We're doing it for them. Yes, we enjoy along the way. But we want to see them happy. We want, to see, we, want, we want them to experience joy and peace and satisfaction. We want to see them flourish. We want to see them be successful in every aspect of life. That, that's how God is with us, except it's perfect in every way. So why do people think or feel, if there's a creator, that he would automatically be against them? Again, that's the view. That's, that's the sense that people have. And when we speak of God, especially, we don't, we, you know, we don't allow individuals, they can, it's America, they do really want, but when we have our conversations with people, we don't want to allow an individual to kind of define God as they want God to be. That's a very self-serving God, that's, that's, that's a God who is going to be weak, a God who's going to have all the same prejudices they have, that's going to be a God who's going to have all the weaknesses that they have. But what we believe in, if, there's, if God does exist, that, that we need to come to know Him, He reveals Himself to us. But man, again, when it comes to the God of the Bible, the God who was almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, we, we have this sense in us, especially as non-believers, that God is against us. That He's automatically against us. That He's out to destroy our enjoyment. And that He is spitefully desires to restrict our freedom. Let me read to you from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says, This I say, and therefore I testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. (coughs) Now, we covered this for about four or five weeks on Wednesday nights. Let me remind you that when you see the word Gentiles in the New Testament, that sometimes it's referring to non-Jewish people, and sometimes it's just another word for pagans. So I just need to remember that. So here, as Paul writes to these believers, he says, look, don't walk like the rest of the world walks. Don't live your life the way that non-believers or pagans live their life. How do they live their life? He says here, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So here, not only do unbelievers live their life in the emptiness of their mind, meaning they're unable to think correctly, their understanding of life, their understanding of a spiritual thing is darkened. That's because of their sin. He also says that they have been alienated. They have cut themselves off. They have become enemies of, of the life that God has for them. And the reason for that is because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, the ignorance that, that is in them uh, is, does not mean that they're not intelligent. He doesn't say that, that they have alienated themselves from the life of God because they're stupid. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that they're ignorant. The idea here is that they are actually ignorant as to what God is actually like. They don't know what God is like. Man cannot discover what God is like on his own. God has to reveal himself to us. He revealed himself to us through the person of Christ through his word. That's how we know who he is. That's why we understand that God is both a God of love and a God of wrath. Our understanding of that is because what he's given us, you don't, you don't go out to the, into the jungle or the forest or the North Pole and just kind of go into meditation and figure out all these things. God has revealed these things to us. But again, he's revealed these things to man who in his natural state is assuming that God is against him. And that God is a cosmic killjoy. In his book on atheism, R.C. Sproul says, Ultimately, man can be completely autonomous only if there is no God. That's true. Remember that. The Bible tells us clearly that the universe is upheld by the, by the word of God. What that means is, is the law of gravity and all the various laws that we learn about, whether it's in science or medical class or whatever, all those laws continue to work because God exists and because God wills it. You, Your heart is beating now, hopefully at a normal rate, and it doesn't, you don't have to think about your heart beating. That's because that's the way God created it. God wills that, that to happen in the way that we are built, in the way that we function. If God doesn't exist, we don't exist. That, those things don't work. All those things that we understand about science, no matter what branch of it is, all depend upon the existence of God. And God's existence, he wills these things to be, therefore they are. And so we are truly dependent upon God in every way. We normally don't think about that very often. We probably don't think about that enough. But we really are absolutely completely dependent upon Him. If He doesn't will it, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. If God does exist, then the quest for human autonomy is a fool's quest. It simply can't happen. It's like a piece of pottery thinking it came into existence entirely apart from the potter. All of creation came into being because of God. It remains in existence because of God. And while man, a moral creature, is granted a degree of freedom, we were never meant to be autonomous. R.C. Sproul again explains this. He says, in biblical categories of free will, man is created within a framework of freedom, but not autonomy. Man is given freedom, but is refused autonomy. Full autonomy belongs to God alone. Man's freedom is within limits. In Eden, he enjoys freedom, but it is not unlimited freedom. And again, we know this to be practically true in our lives because that's the way we raise our children. We don't raise our children to be, in one sense, completely autonomous. In fact, we, we want them to have freedom, and we begin to give them more and more freedom as they get older. When they're three years old, and if they're, if they're talking well, they say, can I go outside and play unsupervised? You would probably say No. You're not going to go outside and play unsupervised. I'm not going to give you that kind of freedom. If, you're, if your child was to say, But I am an autonomous human being, <laughs> you might call your friends and say, I've got a genius here, but he's very rebellious. But the point is, is that what we, well, we would probably say I don't care what you are. I'm your dad, and you're not going, their fence isn't done, and you're not going out there unless I'm out there with you. All right, so we want to encourage freedom, a certain amount of freedom, but there's limits. And of course, More and more of those limits are removed as they get older, but even after that, when you let your children completely go, they do not ever become completely autonomous in the sense that there are many laws of man they must obey, laws of the state, laws of the country, and of course we believe the law of God that they must obey, Uh, even though they may be free from being obedient to us, the Bible also indicates that there needs to be this ongoing attitude of honor towards our, our parents. That is, that is the right thing for us to do. And so we're never, we're never completely free in that sense. And somehow that's what man wants. He somehow thinks that if he has complete autonomy, is going to bring him love, joy, peace, happiness. It's not going to. Individuals who move in that direction, it's just followed by one disastrous thing after another. Because we are in also, in a sense, interdependent upon each other. And so if you, you know, suddenly if a man is married for, you know, 25 years and suddenly he says, you know what, I think I'd rather be an autonomous human being. Well, he's going to be hurting a whole lot of people. He's going to be, there's going to be a lot of destruction that's going to be brought about as a result of these kinds of decisions. In the Garden of Eden, man is given freedom to take dominion over the earth. And we're given dominion over the earth and we are to be faithful stewards of God's creation. Freedom is ours, but with one restriction that was placed on Adam, which was he couldn't eat of that one tree. Man is free and responsible, but he is also responsible to the law of God. So fallen, sinful man rejects the law of God. He elevates self-law as the word autonomy does mean. As long as, as this relentless desire for autonomy prevails, man is simply digging himself further into the grave. So we need to begin to ask the Lord to help us to change our emotional response or our initial reaction to words the world views as being one that diminishes human beings. It's not wrong, it's not negative for us to use the word obey. When we talk about obeying God, we should, we should champion that, we should cheer that on. When we hear individuals say that, well, you know, I want to do such and such, but I know that God has said I cannot do that, and I want to obey God, we 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 should be encouraging that. We don't want to say, oh, you kind of some kind of a baby. You always have to obey God. Well, you can call it what you want, but the answer is yes, I do need to obey God. There's there's very good reasons for that. And so we need to move in that direction. And I believe that that the effect of our culture is so powerful, even though you and I might just decide that these words are now going to be positive, we need to ask the Lord to continue to change our hearts so that we can spontaneously respond to these things the way that God wants us to. Remember that the Bible talks about obedience to God as being something that is a joyful thing to do, as well as that which brings joy. And again, we use a lot of illustrations, at least I know, I use a lot of illustrations of the kids. You watch little kids, and there are times when their obedience to mom and dad, that they are joyful in, not just, it's not that it just brings joy, they joyfully obey. It really is, that's a very real human condition. A person can live that way. You can obey, and there's great joy in that. And we need to stop allowing the world to steal that from us. The problem with all of this, though, and the warnings that were given in Scripture, is that we're warned not to allow the world to continue its great influence over us. And the world continues to strive to influence us in this area. And so there are Christians who are tempted to move towards being autonomous. In other words, the sad truth is there are millions of Christians well, maybe millions, maybe it's just hundreds of thousands. It's a large number of Christians who are living as if they're still pagans. They want to be able to call all the shots and make all the rules. They want to be the boss. They are, and, and they really, in the end, are living as non-Christians live. They have put their hand up at a meeting maybe years ago. Maybe they went down an aisle after an emotional gospel appeal had been given. But they're still living for all intents and purposes as unredeemed sinners. It's not unusual to find in our country individuals who live their lives as if they are Christians as long as everything is going the way they want. But the moment things do not go the way they want, you'll see where their loyalty lies. Whether it's the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of power or the pursuit of money or the pursuit of a relationship, whatever it is, if they aren't getting what they want soon enough or fast enough or in the right way, they're going to begin to turn to the way of the world and try to find a way to justify whatever it is that they're doing to fulfill whatever that need happens to be. We see that, and this is too easy an illustration to use, but it's still true, where you have the individual who's single who would like to get married. That's a great desire for any single person. But there are those then who become maybe impatient, once again, because it's not happening as quickly as they want or whatever the case may happen to be. And so then... Their faith in the word of God begins to waver. And they then somehow figure out that they want to go in the direction they want to go in. Because there's lots of single people at the bar. There's lots of single people at the nightclub. And so, well, you know, there comes the phrase, I can be a Christian witness at the nightclub well, you are probably be a better Christian witness at 9 a.m. at the nightclub than at 9 p.m., but nonetheless, that begins to happen. And then if somebody was to call us on that, you know, based on what the Word of God says, what, that, that sense comes out of us, that resistance to God, that resistance to, to somehow God trying to restrict our freedom and take things away from us or whatever the case may happen to be, because it's a natural way for us to go. What we need to realize is this is that either Christ reigns supreme in our life or he does not. We do not decide what is right and what is true. In fact, too often by our very lives we demonstrate that Christ really isn't Lord at all, that self is the king. And self has never been crucified, never been put to death, never even told to get out of the way. We need to realize that those who claim allegiance to Christ but still think they can call the shots are, in fact, part of the fallen order. Autonomous man, unregenerate and unredeemed. In our heads, most of us can affirm the sinfulness of man's autonomy. But in our hearts, many of us still are still living as if we really don't think it's that sinful at all. Self is still on the throne, and Christ is nowhere to be found. One of my favorite authors is Francis Schaeffer, who not only was a great apologist, but he had a great deal to say about the Christian life. And he longed for transformed hearts, not just transformed heads. And in his book entitled True Spirituality, he says this, We do everything we can, whether it is in a philosophic sense or practical sense, to put ourselves at the center of the universe. This is where we naturally want to live. And this natural disposition fits in exactly with the environment which surrounds us in the 20th century. This was the very crux of the fall. We need to remember that Calvary, the cross of Christ, is the only solution to all of this. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 22, Christ puts forth the the answer in a chronological way. Verse 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. The order of what Christ lays out before us is this, being rejected, being slain, and being raised. He speaks of his coming unique substitutionary death. This order, rejected, slain, and raised, is immediately related by Jesus Christ when you continue to read. Beginning in verse 23, he says this, and he said unto them, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, renounce himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever shall, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose himself for my sake, the same shall save it. Jesus does here take the order that was necessary for our redemption in the unique substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and applies it to the Christian life. The Christian life is rejected, slain, and raised. It's the order of true spirituality. In other words, I am the face, the cross of Christ in every part of my life with my whole man. That's the Francis Schaeffer language coming out, the whole man. The idea is as I live my life, the cross is always there in every aspect of my life every attitude, every thought, I'm facing the cross of Christ. I am living my life, I'm dealing with life, I'm understanding life through the understanding of what the cross of Christ means. That man was alienated from God and that everything about man had been ruined by sin. And the way that man was going to be fixed, the way that man was going to be redeemed was through Christ. And then in Christ we will find a proper understanding as well as peace and happiness and wisdom and understanding. The cross of Jesus Christ is to be a reality to me, not only once for all at my conversion, but through all my life as a Christian. The answer to the autonomous man is what some might call the cruciform life. We don't really use that word too often. You find that in some older writings, but they talk about the cruciform life. And what that means is, as the individual, the believer, lives his life facing the cross, living his life under the shadow of the cross. He has crucified himself to the cross and is living for Christ. And is not being self-centered, but is being Christ-centered. As long as we exalt ourselves above God, we will find only death. Yet when we seek to put self to death, we then can find, in fact, life. Remember that autonomous, na- uh, autonomous man is nothing more than the walking dead. It's a man who appears to have life, but is doomed. You know, that's uh, a phrase they use sometimes on death row when a, when a man is uh, being led to his execution. Yeah, they say, dead man walking. In other words, he's as good as dead. That's where he's going, is a death chamber. But he's, he's walking. And, and, so, and that kind of visualizes what life is like for the non believer. Death is coming, it's guaranteed. There's no way to avoid it. And because uh, the individual is living only for himself, he's just a dead man walking. That's all that he is nothing more and nothing else. The crucified life is the only answer to this. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves as believers is are you, am I a dead man walking? Is that all that I am? Just a dead man walking. Have you been fooling yourself, trying to be both a Christian, submitting to God, but in reality, seeking to live an autonomous life, seeking to to live life the way that you want to live, trying to orchestrate everything so it goes the way that you want, maybe even dressing it in spiritual language so others don't pick up on this? I know I've shared this with you before. Let me just use this briefly. My senior year in high school... I was okay. I was a good football player, but I wasn't great. But I wanted to go to college to play football. That was my only goal in life at that moment was to do that. And so I was looking very hard to find a school that I could play football at. So since I knew that I was not Division I material, I was looking at smaller schools. And so I found a smaller school and had some friends that were going there. And there was a large contingency of people from Hawaii that went to the school in, in Oregon. And so that's where, I, that's where I set my sights was getting into this school to go there to not get an education. That was just a byproduct. It was to play football. So my life I was living was completely self-centered on what I wanted. I didn't, not only did I not care what God wanted, I was kind of afraid of what God wanted. Because again, I was naturally thinking that God was against me and against what I wanted. And so what I did was I dressed up my desires in Christian language. I told people that I I was praying about this decision. Truth be told, I wasn't praying. Sometimes I told God, or I would just ask God to bless my decision, but I wasn't asking Him for any wisdom in making the decision. I dressed up my decision uh, by telling other individuals that I was convinced that if I went there and I I was playing football, that would be just another avenue to be able to share Christ. That wasn't my intent. If it happened, it happened, but my intent was to go there just to play football. And so we can do that. We can dress all these things up, but the whole while we're just living in an autonomous way and no one else is really aware of it, Eh, except I think my dad knew. My dad was a very wise man. It's really hard to pull the wool over his eyes. Even at 82, you can't do that. I don't try anymore, but anyway. But the point is, is that he wasn't fooled. But that's what I was doing. So according to everybody else, I was probably living very morally. I was being responsible. I was going to go to a school that ended up being, you know, it was going to be a pretty good school. But I was just making all the decisions for myself. Wasn't seeking God in any way, shape, or form. Didn't want to know what he had to say. Was afraid of what he would have to say. And so I basically kind of put words in his mouth so it looked good to other people. That's what we do. I was very fortunate because God had to discipline me, and when he disciplined me, unlike some of those individuals in the Bible who were disciplined, which resulted in death, mine just resulted in a broken knee, but it was probably the best, well, not probably, outside of salvation, the best thing that ever happened to me because everything good that happened to me after that happened after that event when my knee was broken. God and his loving kindness you know that's what, that's what happens with a, what, I, what I've read it happens to a wayward lamb you know what a shepherd does if a lamb keeps leaving the flock he goes to the lamb and he snaps his leg in half and then he puts a splint on it and then he puts the lamb on his shoulders and he carries it while the lamb heals and according to what I've read when the leg heals that lamb is never more than a few feet from away from him ever again and so that's sometimes what the Lord would do now, some of you may have already gone through that. Some of you may be facing that. And The breaking of bones can be sometimes uh, avoided. It's by repenting of your sin, repenting of your, of your attempt at autonomy, and submitting yourself to Christ. Believers need to do that over and over again because the flesh continues to rise. Its natural disposition is to resist God Our natural disposition is to think that there's things that God doesn't want us to do because he wants to kill our joy. And that's not what God wants. Not at all. And for the non-believer, even for the one who may be unwilling to admit this, they have a fairly negative view of God. We want God to be there when we really need him. But we want to quickly put him back on the shelf once the crisis is over. And just as long as he's available when there's another crisis, we're kind of happy. And in the end, what we find is that our life is just filled with one disaster after another. Oh, it may not be catastrophic in the sense that you end up in the hospital, but it seems that relationships never quite form the way they should. Relationships are never quite as fulfilling as they should be. Things continue to end where they're not quite as satisfying as they would be. And there's just this ongoing frustration. It's like you're always getting into trouble, or you're always getting caught, or you're always sad, or you're always alone. There's just always something that's there. And what I want to do is is I'm not telling you that if you come to Christ, your life will be filled with just only happiness. Because that's not true either. But I can guarantee you this, you'll never be alone. I can guarantee you this, that you will know that you have your sins forgiven and that you have been adopted by God's child. And you know that in the end, it will all be good. Because all things will be set straight one day and we will have a guaranteed seat at the table with the master. Because he loves us. Romans tells us that while we were in the midst of basically spitting in his face and rebelling, Christ came and died for us. And that's what we celebrate more now than ever before at this time of the year, is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ had not died for our sins, then the resurrection really wouldn't mean much of anything. It all comes together. And so I would encourage you to examine your life and find out how much of your life is submitted to the Word of God. And how much of your life is, is it really just a self-centeredness? And I ask you to repent of that so that God may bring you great joy, God may bring you great satisfaction, that God may use you in the lives of others. And many times the others that he's going to use your, your life in first is going to be the lives of your children and your grandchildren, the ones that we love the most. You don't want to be the individual who leads them astray. You want to be the one who leads them and points them to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we thank you, Lord, for your great patience with us. Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to live in obedience to your word. Father, so often we just turn to the ways of the world to find relief. Whether we're looking for, maybe it's turning to the bottle. Maybe it's turning to some other substance. Maybe it's turning to work. Maybe it's turning to some other relationship that is not right or proper. But we're always turning somewhere, trying to find relief. Trying to find a way to get out from the pressure that we are experiencing the trouble that we're having because we're only living for ourselves and what we want in fact father sometimes we pretend that we care about others but really we want them to do well just so that we can have a life of ease ourselves we pray lord you help us to evaluate ourselves honestly we pray lord that you would show us ourselves i know lord that that can be a very scary thing but father you pray also lord that you remind us of your great love for us And that even though we might be appalled and terrified when we see ourselves for the first time, you've always seen us that way. And you've never abandoned us. You've never turned away in disgust. But you sent us your Son, Christ, and the offer of salvation is there. So, Father, we pray that as both believers and non-believers, the Lord, that we would reach out to Christ, that we would embrace Christ, that we would truly believe in Christ and the gospel and live that message And we would rejoice together in the forgiveness of our sins and the restored relationship that we have with you. Again, Father, we thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.